Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I was just thinking the other day that almost every time we actually catch up, it feels like a scene out of a Wes Anderson film or something. I mean, there was that sort of bizarre foot massage incident that we had in Hong Kong <laughs> almost 10 years ago. And I then, needed that foot massage. <laughs> and then we were like eating guacamole by the pool at the Standard in Los Angeles. Yeah, I remember um, that too. So it almost feels banal that we're, we're you know, we were catching up over chicken dinner in, in Arizona yeah. tonight. Drinking ice water. I mean, we at least could have sat outside by the fire. It was too cold. It was too cold. I'm, um, I am catching up with Peter Sheehan, who is the CEO and founder of the Carrigan's Group, which is uh, one of the world's leading behavioral change experts. Uh, he's the author of a number of best-selling books, including Matter, your most recent. Yeah. Uh, you know, actually, Peter, for me at least, I, I, I feel like I owe you a great debt of gratitude because I wouldn't be sitting in this hotel room tonight if it, if it wasn't for you because uh, you're the one who actually dragged and dropped me into this uh, into this career hellhole known as public speaking. <laughs> that, that looks glamorous <laughs> from the outside, but not on the inside. I remember some of our early conversations, Mike, and I remember... You were actually living a pretty glitzy lifestyle. You were doing plenty of speaking, but no one was paying you for it, right? <laughs> and I always remember saying, you know, speak to the plumbers. The plumbers pay, you know, like less marketing events and more plumbing events. You, you were actually even a little sharper in your advice. I remember you, the, the day we met, you pulled me aside and said, look, that was a great talk. How much did you charge for it? And I said, nothing. And you said, I knew it. Can you please stop doing that? You're going to put us out of business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop being good and free, right? It's like Skype versus the telecommunications companies, right? So it's, it's been a while. It has, mate. And, uh, you know, it's been really interesting watching your thinking and your work and the kind of the things you've been doing with clients over the last few years because it's you, you've sort of gone on this, this journey from talking about the next generation and the millennials to really focusing on you know, how great companies deliver value for their customers and how they deal with disruption. Yeah, um, it's been a fun journey, you know. I actually started with working with the next generation. Right. And then I was like, these guys have a whole different view of the world. Let me write a book about that view of the world, which was the Generation Y work. This is when you were running a, a, a bar and Yeah, I was like sick of people not showing up on a Saturday night. <laughs> and then I was in all these, all of a sudden in these boardrooms, essentially talking about the next generation, quote unquote, Realizing that it had nothing to do with young people and everything to do with disruption. You, right? you, you were the millennial whisperer. I was. I was like the, 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 the voice of the kids, so to speak, right? But it was clear to me there was something bigger happening yeah. around, you know, what we'd now call digital for one, but to the empowerment of the individual versus the institution. There were these meta-level shifts taking place that were encapsulated in a quote-unquote generation, but there was a bigger shift needed. And what... There's only so many times you can show up in that environment and tell people, hey, the world's changing before they say, well, how about you shut up and help us deal with it? And really, a lot of our work now is helping organizations transform themselves in the face of the change and disruption. So, well, It's really strange how disruptions entered the lexicon now as a positive thing. Um, and it's sort of become this sort of focus word that everyone talks about all the time. And generally, they talk about the obvious candidates like Uber and Airbnb. Mm. Uh, but I actually feel in many ways they don't really understand what disruption actually means. 
Yeah. You know, from your perspective, what, what actually is disruption and what generally drives it? Yeah, so I'm open to your perspective too. But for me, it's two things. I think it's number one, when the process by which you create value is changing by some force other than yourself, right? right? So if you're a financial advisor and Dodd-Frank and the DOL is demanding that you do discovery work before you give advice and that that advice is in the best interest of your client, that's changing the process by which you create value. And I think the second thing is when it changes the mechanisms or the models by which you extract value from that process, right? So, you know, go back to the digital disruption of the media companies who traditionally controlled the flow of content right. and they monetized the points at which they had control. And I think about retailers who are getting spanked right now, right? Because they used to monetize control of access to product or vice versa. And so now their ability to monetize those points is going down. So I think it's when the process of value creation is being changed or when the monetization of the model of creating that value and, and, and the catalyst for this could be regulatory, it could be technological, it could be behavioral. Uh, there's sort of an infinite number of things that potentially drive these. Yeah, around. and I think the association between um, disruption and technology is a is a overly simplistic simplification, right? right? Because actually, is this a great deal of things that are technological that are really enhancing one's ability to create value as well as enhancing the models by which you extract it value for yourself from that. That's why I think disruptions become positive, right? <laughs> but there are some other examples like regulatory examples that are gonna fundamentally redraw the map, right? And they're not good for certain businesses who have established their strength in the market by barriers to entry or by you know other things that are, that are easily broken down either with a new regulatory and tax environment or broken down by changing consumer preferences. I mean, look at what, um, you know, uh, uh, Warby Parker has done to Luxottica around really changing the whole model of that industry. And it's a pretty sexy example that people like to talk about a lot. But it it's changed the way glasses get done. Someone's going to disrupt them too, by the way, when we start 3D printing these things yeah. in your house, right? From a consumer perspective, disruption often leads to better outcomes because it leads to greater competition or, you know, new business models. Uh, but also... There's another narrative here, which is that disruption leads to greater consolidation and a winner-takes-all market. Yeah, so I'm going to address that in two parts. I actually think the reason consumers disrupt the market is because they are seeking a better outcome. Right, and a better experience. Correct, it's right. Like, you know, 30 years, you know, you mentioned Uber, 30 years of taxi drivers hating, being hated should have been enough evidence that that market was going to move at some point, right? Mm. And as soon as consumers found a better way to solve their problem, they moved that way, Right. And so it is the consumer's pursuit of out their outcome that leads to the disruption, but that usually is a better result or a better outcome for them too, right? So I see that, that piece. Um, the second part of your question, I, remind me the second part of the, the well, comment. Well, it's not always obvious that that leads to better outcomes for consumers. I mean, if you look at the technology space, disruption in areas like you know search or in social media oh, the consolidation or, and the you, network you're actually effect, seeing yeah. the, the sort of the rise of these winner takes all markets of amazon who they win in one category and then they use that to dominate all categories yeah he he who owns the relationship with the customer wins right and if you think about Amazon or a Google, they basically just establish themselves as the primary source for the customer. They become meta-category killers. Correct, right? Yeah. And then add to that the net marginal cost of scaling ones and zeros is effectively zero, right? Yeah. It's like the pharmaceutical industry, a billion dollars to make the first pill and everything after that's free, right? Yeah. And so 
the network effect of technology as, and, and what really technology, like Amazon's current growth trajectory isn't coming from stuff that they sell, it's the marketplace, right? They yeah. have just become a platform in a way, as Google is in many ways too. And I do think it's a disadvantage. I actually would be very surprised if we don't see some government intervention. Well, it's already happening in Europe. Yeah. I mean, the Europeans are just lobbying almost arbitrary fines now on big tech giants. Yeah. Uh, but part of that is just really trying to shake the tree to show them that we're moving to a marketplace that's increasingly difficult for regulators to break up. And it's moving more quickly than yeah. they can. And so the, the trade-off is, I don't know if the consumer knows they're getting screwed. Well, this is what right? I'm saying. Like, is, disruption started off, as, a, 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 as you said, about the pursuit of better customer experiences. But is that the end point? Yeah. And, you know, if I'm, in my personal opinion right now is that the consumer is not getting screwed. But it's only a matter of time before someone <laughs> with that much market power begins to leverage that, right? Like once you're multiple... Um, CEOs away from the founder and the original ethos. And once you're trying to move the needle on $500 billion market valuation instead of a $500 million one, that gets harder and harder to do without exploiting the model, right? And so the beginning of, you know, don't do, don't do anything evil or whatever that phrase is out of Google, right? They're in a position to do a lot of really evil things. And so is a company like Amazon. Thankfully, they don't right now. But I don't know. It depends on your worldview, right? Like we're here in America and you know, commerce is good and money is good. But you know, you live in London these days. I think, I think America is losing something having lost high street shopping and local purveyors and curators of of like good taste. Like, there's no city in the world I'd rather be in than London and on a high street. So, you know, maybe even our definition of a better customer outcome should change because right. there, not, there needs to be a civic element to that. And, and that does open up the question of if you are a traditional business trying to reinvent itself in this new age, uh, your choice isn't about ceding to Amazon or going out of business. Of course. Uh, yeah. There is a path to you know, embracing disruption. And this was one of the, the great parts of you know, your most recent book, which is about finding the, the edge of disruption. Yeah. So could, could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, so there's a couple of bits to that question, but the, the, the edge of disruption would be defined as the overlap between your potential capabilities. It might not be things you're brilliant at right now, but they're at least on the periphery of what you can pull off. Right. Um, the overlap of that with um, emerging market need, right, where clients and customers have genuine problems that they need solved, but where new technology, new regulation, new market dynamics, disruption, quote unquote, the overlap of those three things creates an, a whole set of new possibilities, right? right? And but, but, but these are real as opposed to sort of imagined or so far off in the future. I have zero appetite for people that talk <laughs> about, you know, like we're going to change the universe kind of stuff, right? At the end of the day, they might talk like that, but that's a PR statement. Right. When we work with a chief executive and his or her team, we're defining 36 to 48 months out. We're never thinking, you know, you can have this big picture hyperbole, but really at the end of the day, it's what are you doing now? Let me give you an example, right? Take Nike Plus, right? Mm. So here you have a company that makes its money selling functional athletic equipment that's branded, that is like an aspirational lifestyle. They're in every category, just about every sport. They've got 50% more market share than Adidas. Adidas are on a rampage right now and doing very well. But look at the, the shift of the Nike business into... The, the combination of analytics, data, social media, and social pressure to influence the behavior of the amateur athlete, you and I, to exercise more regularly, right? Because we've all got access to product. 
We've all got access to brand and aspirational lifestyle elements. What we're lacking is discipline. Hmm. 20, uh, 28 million active users of the Nike Plus platform. Did you know those users spend three times more money with Nike than their typical customer does? They've run 1.2 billion miles tracked on that platform. You run a billion miles, that's a lot of shoes. Right, like, and so you see Nike taking this um, this disruptive force of technology, social media, sensorization of everything, with their core capabilities, which is community building, which is essentially what they've always done around product and athletic apparel, with a market need around discipline and time management and 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 fighting a sedentary lifestyle, and you have an edge of disruption with huge market opportunity. When you when you frame it that way, Nike doesn't look like an apparel company at all. It looks like a data driven, you know. Community you and know, that, with a shared affinity, they would have told you even 30 years ago they were a community building company. Like, if you talk to the team that created Nike for women and things like that, they don't they talk about being a company of community builders. They're not really valued though, as, as if they are a true sort of you know niche Facebook for sports enthusiasts, yeah. But you know, I surely there's going to be a shake out of that tree one day. Like, last I checked. You know, most companies should be valued on a discounted future cash flow, and therefore you need to generate some profits. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, go back to our conversation about disruption. This winner takes all model. Those winners are yet to, with the exception of Google, properly monetize relative to their market valuation. Right. Exactly. And so we might see a, a correction. You know, you look at the valuations of companies like Skype and LinkedIn or whatever. Well, they're only really worth that because Microsoft, who knows how to sell Windows and and productivity applications and cloud solutions, was willing to pay over the discounted future cash flow value of that company for the strategic value of that company, right? At some point, the the option value of these companies actually has to come to fruition. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and someone is absorbing the loss. Does yeah. that make sense? So that debt, which it wasn't in, in Microsoft's case, but that, that change in their balance sheet is now reflected in their valuation, right? Having bought these companies. And so at, at the end of the day, these inflated valuations come back to roost somewhere. And what I like, I, I'm okay with Nike not being valued like that because I like the fact that Nike's valued on what it sells and how much money it makes. I feel like that's a fair valuation, right? right. Um, what will establish, uh, why I like the, let's go back to the comment about matter. What I like about the Nike move is they're building deeper partnerships with those communities, right? So if you were just selling me sneakers, I mean, you're a commodity, right? I might like the brand and maybe you're, you represent a star that I want to be like as a kid and so I build an affinity to that brand. But you know what? I probably like a soccer player as much who wears a Nike as I do that wears a, an Adidas. But if you are my behavior change partner, you are the person upon which I rely on to live a healthy, non-sedentary lifestyle. Yeah. You now have a, I have a vested relationship with you. Does that make sense? Like, and the more data I give you and the more I behave on your platform, the stickier that partnership's going to be. And so I'm vested in your success. I want you to get more successful. There's something deeply algorithmic about all of this because suddenly the algorithms that you're using to modify people's behavior become the core of the value. They become self-fulfilling as right. well, right? The, the, the more you... And this applies to insurance companies, uh, you know, or almost any other area where behavioral economics is relevant. Yeah, I mean, the more you can... You know what? There's something interesting though. The, there, and this goes back to the research we did for Matter. Those interests in Nike's case are aligned, okay? And so the more you engage in the behavior that's good for you, the more money you make, right. more money Nike makes, right? You compare that to the gym model. Let's take the same context and apply it to fitness centers. The less you go to that fitness center, the more money they make. Right. 
So there's not a it's lot like, of it's, it's like late fees. I mean, the less likely you are to return a, you know, a, a video cassette on time in the 80s, yeah. the more money they would make. Exactly. And that was the whole business model. That is setting up your creation of value in opposition to your customer. In other words, the less value your customer gets, the more you get, which is why Michael Porter got so famous on his like, you know, we're competing for margin with our customer thing, right? Actually, companies like Nike, and I would say a company like Adobe these days, are building business models where the better they do, the better you do, right? That's part of the data effect, right? The more data I collect and the more people that are in my network, the network effect, the more I get, the better the network is and the better the data is, right? So Facebook gets better the more people use it. Right. This is the logic of platforms. Precisely. Yeah. But what you're saying, which I think is really interesting, is that logic of platforms just doesn't apply to Amazon or Google or Facebook. It applies to any company that's willing to invest in its ecosystem and become you know, relevant, you know, to a broader group of people. Yeah, you use prog- you use insurance companies. Think about Progressive and their accelerometer that they stick right. in your fuse box, or, right? Or, or, or Vitality, you know, yeah. life insurance, where they, where they actually encourage you to, you know, wear wristbands to track your movements. Correct, but they would, in order to, to really live that model, they would have to be happy for more accurate pricing to take place, right? Like, yeah. instead of just aggregating groups on the whole and... You'd, you'd have to, you'd have to, well, initially discount premiums, but later penalize people for not exercising. Or both, you'd be discount, yeah. So in the Vitality <laughs> model, in the Progressive model, you know pretty quick, and is it... Do, how fast, how rapidly do you accelerate? How late do you break? And do you drive between the hours of 12 and 4? That's all they need to know and they can price your risk yeah. fairly accurately. But now if you are not good on that criteria, you're going to pay a lot more money for insurance. So you could say Progressive's risk of being out ahead of that curve is that it's more and more difficult. They, they, they might lose some customers early. But the flip side is, can you imagine now the data Progressive have collected about driver safety and what that looks like? Mm. You think about what that data is going to do when all of a sudden the duty of care doesn't sit with the driver, but with the autonomous vehicle operating system because they won't even be a driver, right? Like, yeah, I've been I've been thinking about a lot a, a lot about this too, Pete, because you know trying to figure out the algorithmic core of a company is a bit like realizing. You know, when Coca-Cola did that, the core of its value was the secret formula that only two executives, you know, they couldn't be on the same plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was quite simplistic back then. But, you know, now being able to identify the, 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 the code and the relationships and the data at the heart of the way you deliver value applies equally whether you're a search company or you're an apparel company or an insurance company or a retailer. Take Burberry, Right. right? So Angela Arendt, who leaves Donna Car in New York, ends up at Burberry. She's obviously at Apple now. Um, she was like, I want walking into my store to feel like walking into a website. And they spent 300,000 hours on that Regent Street store in London and tried some really cutting edge technologies, completely unscalable at that price for the bricks and mortar environment. But if you talk to them about what they learned, it was they learned that Customers like spending two and a half thousand dollars on a raincoat, right? Want to be treated like a one-to-one person, not a segment, right? Mm. And so, actually, it was the concept of understanding and using data, data, that became the most powerful part of that whole process. They tripled the value of Burberry in seven years. I mean, it's yeah. an extraordinary story, right? And it's this whole point that they understood the algorithm was the the ability to connect with that customer, but that was empower that was it was empowering the human connection. Yeah, so the technology augmented the human connection. But, because you know what? There's no way, unless that person goes into the Burberry store in Mayfair every single week, there's highly unlikely that sales clerk knows who the heck they are. But you know what? A true Burberry customer is probably going to Burberry all over the world. Yeah. 
And so there's that customer doesn't care how Burberry's structured. They don't care if there's a subsidiary in the UK. They're like, this is my brand. I have a relationship with that brand. When I walk into this damn store, you should know who I am. And that's what it was enabling to do, right? And then they were able to take that same one-to-one concept and put it onto their online platforms and everything else they did as well. And it gives you true transparency in, in, into customer value because, you know, we we're talking about uh, foot massages in Hong Kong before, but I remember when I was living there that uh, the luxury stores like Prada wouldn't even bother to capture your customer details yeah. if you didn't spend at least $50,000 a year with them. They actually would track it. Once you spend a certain amount of money, then they would bother to even take your details. Isn't that amazing? And, yeah. and, and it's just a kind of a myopia around you know, where the real value of a customer experience is, not just in one store, but across the city or across, across the world. Yeah. I wonder, what, I wonder how many relationships they missed because they were just thinking about their role in the ecosystem, right? The, the, this also, I think, leads to um, companies moving vertically up, up the value system as well. And we were talking before about the recent moves by CVS. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think this is sort of very relevant because it's, you know, how do you move away from just being reactionary to disruption to taking a proactive stance to reimagine yourselves? Yeah, so let's set that up, right? Between June and September, if you took the four largest grocery retailers in America, $22 billion of market value got wiped from those companies. Mm. You steal a car, you go to jail. You write $20 billion of market value off a company, you get a golden parachute. I mean, it's, a, it's an offensive concept if you ask me, right? And um, the general narrative in the market is no one saw, no one saw Whole Foods, no one saw Amazon's coming. Are you kidding me? How about the fact that in 1999, Amazon bought 35% of an online grocery? How about the fact that last year they announced their own food brand? Like, how about the fact that in 2006, they built an online food platform? I mean, Amazon have been telling the world for a decade they're coming into the food and grocery business. But no one at, insert company name here, no one saw it coming. Are you kidding me, right? That's just been totally waiting for the fast followership or having your head in the sand and being deluded about customer behavior or a competitor's <laughs> ability to disrupt, right? Compare that to CVS, okay? So CVS have long been diversifying their base to attract a larger share of wallet, right? So if you're gonna come and get your drugs here, why don't you also get your candy bars, etc., while you're there? And they, like, their men, Walgreens, all expanded in that same It was like, like Boots in the UK. Correct, exactly the yeah. same, right? And then, all of a sudden there's a war, like all of a sudden there's convenience is not, you're not the only one with convenience. Does that make sense? And you're not the only one with scale, right? So you're neither leading the market on convenience or leading the market on scale because the gas and service stations took over convenience and the, the hyper stores took over price. And so now you have people like CVS and Walgreens and Boots in this kind of middle ground, right? Where they're neither, they're not everything to anybody and all those other companies now have drug facilities as well. And so CVS has a choice. It can either do battle at a highly commoditized, price-sensitive, convenience-driven market. Right, Walmart with, with drugs, basically. Yeah, but you can't out-Walmart Walmart, and no. they've got drugs now anyway, right? Yeah. And so they made a really smart decision a few years ago to position themselves as a healthcare partner, and it begun by taking tobacco off their shelves, which, by the way, had a $2 billion, $2.2 billion revenue impact, I think, from memory. I'd have to check that number. But they massively return that by the size of the government contracts they were able to renew mm. by not being seen as, hey, you can't be delivering healthcare and selling cigarettes. Like, do you know how expensive that is, right? And then they go and buy Aetna because we all, you know, one in $5 of, of, of GDP in America gets spent on healthcare. 
we have to extract costs from the system. And part of how we do that is get people out of acute facilities into lower cost environments because we're clogging up the system with strep throat and an earache, you know? Yeah. And so here you have, they've already got a thousand minute clinics or whatever that, the, the, the name of that, their the pharma, their the health delivery arm is. They've got thousands and thousands of stores. They are, and they're the drug, they are perfectly positioned to be a provider of healthcare. So, you know, they always say in healthcare, you need to have all those things aligned, payers, providers, physicians. You need the whole trifecta in order to really be able to take costs out of the system. Well, in a way, they're just vertically integrated, yeah. right? And so it's not, but it's the same strategy as Nike, right? They are moving up the value chain. They are solving a higher order problem. And, and data is a big part of that. It'll have to be a big part of that. But I mean, data is going to be a big part of that industry with the EMR and everything that's going to happen around yeah. that. I really, I, I really think what they are going to do is give people an access to a healthcare experience sufficient to meet their likely not that big a need. You know, right. that right now we're we're what's that? Um, we're swatting a fly with a baseball bat with these huge acute care environments. If you've got a sore throat, like yes, we want to make sure you get the right medicine, but we probably don't need to send you to the OR to get it done. You know, like no. or to the emergency room to get it done. I'm pretty excited about it. I actually, whether they overpaid for Aetna or not, it's a different question. I think the move's the right strategic move. So if you're building a culture at your organization where you're embracing disruption, you're trying to solve more complex, higher order problems, as a leader, how do you prepare your team to kind of embrace that mindset where the relationship becomes not one of fear or reaction, but really looking for these opportunities to, to kind of reinvent yourself? Yeah, I think you start by realizing that the single most powerful symbol in any organization is the behavior of a leader, right? right? And so if you're talking about your team, to use the context of the question, you start with you, right? And in our experience, there's a couple of things that matter. Number one is um, your own disposition. Are you optimistic and speaking positively and being very choicefully future focused about what's happening because if you're running around going shit what are we going to do with amazon or what are you're not going to give me all this 80s uh, anthony robbins stuff i actually am a little bit right it's, it's <laughs> have we have we come full circle or? i think we are coming full circle because i've sat in these rooms while these decisions get made we've taken companies on this journey and i can assure you that the number one spreading emotional affect in an organization is fear and anxiety right um great mate of mine dr peter Feuder, shared that observation with me and i was like that's exactly what i'm seeing right um Two, people don't make good decisions when they're scared. They make good decisions when they have some belief in their ability to create value. You call it the self-fulfilling prophecy, call it the placebo effect. You know, it's not the 80s. Henry Ford said it 100 years ago, whether you think you can, you think you can't, you're probably right. And I would say, seriously, that's where that conversation starts. I think number two is capacity. Harvard Business School did a meta-analysis of transformation efforts and found that most of them fail. And even more if there's a merger and acquisition involved. And everyone yeah. thinks it's strategic alignment or culture. No. Their findings were that capacity was the issue. What do you mean by capacity? That people underestimate the amount of time, energy, and mental energy it right. takes to transform a business or to, to um, integrate an, uh, an acquisition. Because it becomes an adjunct to whatever fire they're trying to put out on a day-to-day -day basis. No one, no one shows up at work on a Tuesday with nothing to do. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, we're already stretched. We have, you want to go back to the 90s, we right-sized and re-engineered the organization within an inch of its life. There is not a lot of white space left, you know? And so these overworked managers show up and there's not a lot of capacity left, right? And so if you want your team to begin to innovate, or to begin to take risk or to take clients on a new journey, you have to give them 
some airtime to get it done, you know? And sometimes in these big companies, the primary job of the CEO during a transformation is to protect the executive team from the investment community. There were quite there were some sort of quite naive ways of doing this, you know, ten years back where people talked about Google giving their engineers certain time off and uh, there were companies that created almost like little innovation boot camps, but mm. and accelerators. And- yeah, yeah. But if if you're trying to do something that's sustainable at scale for an organization, what does that generally look like these days? It generally it doesn't look massively different to what you're describing. I don't think it's the Google model because it turned out to be 120 percent time, not 20 exactly. percent time. But the notion of having a dedicated team that's not too far removed from the business that's focused on the future is important. Because what you're really trying to do, if we really boil it down, is you're trying to flatten the maturity of the existing curve. And if possible, you know, continue to extract more growth from the existing core business, right? By the time most companies get around to transforming themselves, they're, on a, they're beginning the process of decline. Does that make sense? So if you can flatten that curve, yeah. then the free cash flow you generate enables you to invest in you the future. You can get to it faster. Correct. However, you need at least 70% of your organization working on that. In fact, probably 90. You probably have 70% <laughs> delivering on your existing promises and 20% doing like innovation with a little eye instead of a big eye. You know, like for instance, one of our clients did a T&E of their um, floor managers found that six out of the eight hours they spend at work is searching for information. There's a lot of opportunity to extract costs from that process, six out of eight hours, right? So you flatten the curve, but you also are trying to create the next curve, right? Then you, that, that same company does pre- is, is trialing preventative maintenance on major um, building infrastructure systems. That reduces their current revenue model by 40% though, because they make their money with service technicians. You think about that, right? So, so do you still in the future see a place or place high value on human ingenuity and insight, leadership and decision making? Or do you think a lot of this stuff, decision making is just going to get automated, systematized and run by these very algorithms? I, I think we've been saying for every wave of technology that's going to happen. I think there will be a massive amount of employment created from the emergence of AI automation and you know, self-learning systems and machines. Uh, I think we'll have a problem where we won't have people skilled to do the jobs that are available. But someone told me the other day the fastest growing job category right now is location specialist, like someone who understands geospatially how data moves based on people's physical movement and how to create experiences based on that. Like that wasn't a job when we graduated high school 20 years ago, like are you kidding me? And so I think there'll be an explosion of It was, by the way, I think it was called a bouncer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'll move you around. <laughs> anyway, so back to the, like, if I, let me find, let me, let me put a bow around that final question, right? Which was around how do organizations do it? You need people dedicated to big eye, no question. They shouldn't be so far out of the organization though that nobody like respects them. But you shouldn't be expecting them in 90 day sprints using design thinking methodology and agile development <laughs> to be able to create the business model of the future, right? Like. Most of these big, huge organizations have been refining that business model for 80 years, you know? And so we need to allow these things we quote unquote incubate some learning curve time. Like they need to go at the beginning of the S curve that is a big significant loss, you know? And so I do think organizations who do it well kind of do that 70, 20, 10 bit. They do the big eye and the little eye. And it is some of that like shoehorning some things out so they've got some, some, some cover to do that work. Pete, it's been great seeing you. Uh, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Let's not wait 10 years before yeah. we do this again. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Cheers, Cheers, mate. mate.
You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.